The presenting sponsor for On Education is Schoology. Schoology is not only the best learning management system, it's also a community of lifelong learners. There are so many things to love about Schoology, but my favorite is the company's passion to connect with their teachers and students to deliver the best product possible. If you want to learn more about Schoology and how they can help you advance what's possible, visit Schoology.com. So that's, I guess, the one thing that I'd say to that that first thing. And the other thing is, uh, well, now I've forgotten the other thing. <laughs> Welcome to On Education. I'm Mike Washburn. And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today. We will discuss how colleges are changing to reach Generation Z, recap the CCFLT conference, debate whether we should be teaching coding to all students, and our interview this week is with Sahaba Stadler of EdBuild, where we get into the weeds about school funding. So you just came back yesterday. I did just come back yesterday morning. Flew yes, back from morning. Denver, Colorado. Beautiful place. I've never been to Denver. I would like to go to Denver. They had ISTE in Denver a couple of years ago, and I, it's it's one of the ones I didn't get to go to, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah it's a, a be- very beautiful city, um, and it's uh, it's grown immensely since I I lived in Colorado eighteen no sorry fourteen years ago, mm-hmm. um, and Denver has grown crazy uh, probably in the last five to seven years I would say, um, but yeah no it's, it's it's very beautiful lots of amazing parks. Uh, I was staying with Noah Geisel friend of the pod <laughs> yeah and uh, and it he lives in downtown Denver and it's just uh, nice. what a beautiful place yes. I have uh, I have friends that live in Denver, and I, I would love to to go there. So, how was the conference, man? The conference was amazing. It was a group of um, over a hundred world language teachers, so a variety of different uh, languages that they teach, um, and started off the day with awards, and uh, they announced the CCFLT Teacher of the Year. I think her, right. her name was Heather Witten, and um, then I did a keynote. For about uh, it was about a half hour keynote, um, and that went really really well. And then there was two workshops. Uh, mine was on uh, gamification and game based learning and in the world languages. Um, so two and a half hour workshop in the morning, and then the same thing in the afternoon. And we just switched. You know, uh, half of the group was in one session, and then they switched over to the other one. Uh, there was a, another teacher there, a teacher educator and speaker. Her name is Laura Sexton, and she runs actually a a really awesome weekly chat for language teachers called Lang Chat, um, and so she, she's a very prominent voice in uh, world languages, uh, and so she did an amazing job on her end too. So super awesome conference, super positive uh, vibe there. So yeah, very very happy with how it all went. Unbelievable! That sounds like so much fun. Uh, I'm. Uh, I bet it was awesome. I, I, I would have been cool to be there. I'm, I'm not a second language teacher, but uh, <laughs> it would have <laughs> it would have been fun to be there. Uh, I had a, a busy week. I, it's Thanksgiving here, by the way. Yeah, that that was weird when you said I'm going to be eating my Thanksgiving dinner, and I said, "What?" <laughs> so I so I learned another lesson about Canada. You guys don't have right. a president. We don't, and, and you and you have Thanksgiving in October. <laughs> <laughs> we do. Yes. Okay. And so, yes, we were recording on uh, on Monday. 
uh, and this is a, a day off for me, which is the only reason why we can do it on a Monday. Uh, so yeah, it's Thanksgiving. I had I have had turkey and ham and. So you guys All have those turkey things. and everything, like the same kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. weird. Well, at least we do. Not everyone does. I mean, <laughs> we're having pizza tonight, so... Because uh, yeah. <laughs> we, we're, we're done with turkey for, you know, whatever. But uh, no, it's... But winter is... It's definitely a, a sign. Uh, people usually close their pools on Thanksgiving weekend here in Canada. So our, our pool is now closed. We closed it yesterday. Does uh, that mean you drained it? Like well, we, yeah, we, you drain it to the skimmer or whatever, and then you, the, the water can stay, the whole, you don't have to drain the whole pool. Oh, okay. But, but you, then you put, the, but you seal it up or something, you put the cover on and stuff. Okay. I yeah, get yeah. Yeah. So pool's closed. Uh, we, we did a bunch of other kind of handyman type stuff around the house yesterday. And today's been a, a chill day. There's some, uh, frozen being watched and some tangled. Uh, being watched and uh, you know everyone's just chilling <laughs> I, I can i could actually smell the banana bread we're we're making banana bread wow that, so you know which things, makes sense because it's getting cold right things are, are happening are, are you guys already freezing up there i mean is, the, i hate i hate stuff? winter i hate winter <laughs> i i mean if um I, I really do i i don't i dislike winter quite a bit and so uh if i could if i could just kind of sit inside all winter yeah. from probably like late November until you know early March I would uh completely do that in a second um you have uh something here uh you know college is changing to reach gen igen igen yep they called it igen I, I think it's we're talking about uh, gen, I mean, gen gen generation z I mean, I guess if you want to call them that, some people are just calling them millennials. I don't know. Uh, I just would say that the, the current students that are coming into uh, colleges and the article is yeah. really, really interesting. There's so many parts to it, but really uh, one of the things that I thought was uh, really eye-opening is a, a lot of times millennials um, just get blamed for a lot of stuff, <laughs> I think. And, and, uh, and they also... Uh, have like a reputation of that uh, they don't know what kind of what's going on or something, you know, there's always something kind of blame going on with them. But one of the things that I thought was really intriguing about this is how millennials are standing up to colleges about how they actually spend their tuition dollars. Um, and so if a college is basically what they consider to be wasting their money on whatever it yeah. might be, they're calling yeah. them out on those things. And I was thinking when I was in college, I never even thought about that. I, I just knew that there was a tuition expectation as far as the the money's there, but I didn't I I didn't actually feel the ownership that these guys actually have, and that's exactly right. It is it is their school, and their monies are the, what's actually driving uh, uh, the school itself, and they should have a say in how that money is is spent, uh, and if it's not being spent with what they consider to be something. Um, you know, productive for their education, you know, or for their experience within the college, then, then, uh, calling that out is, is, is a really awesome thing. Um, well, you're a customer, right? And yes, you can choose, you can go somewhere else. So, I mean, schools that aren't adapting, uh, to new trends, new ways of learning, new ways of thinking, uh, are, are going to be left behind. It's just, frankly, it's just like any other business. I, in 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 these ways, anyways, in in terms of the financial ways, anyways, yes. 
Yes. So they have to change. I mean, I, I say it all the time, I, you know, that schools need to and teachers need to teach kids the way that kids want to learn. I mean, you have to stick to fundamentals and, and do, you know, the critical things. But, you know, um, presentation style um, should be adapted to the students, to the way that they like things to be presented to them. As long as you're hitting the fundamentals, then then. I mean, you should be adapting and, and colleges need to do. There's no difference. Colleges need to do the exact same thing. Uh, you know, we I've, I've read a bunch of articles about how, you know, kids go through their entire, you know, elementary school and high school and have these kind of dynamic, interesting environments potentially. And then, you know, you get to university and all of a sudden you're just sitting in a lecture hall. Yeah. You know, falling, falling asleep. Yeah. I mean, you wonder why people are playing video games on their laptops, you know, in the, in the big, you know, philosophy, you know, lecture that has 400 people in it because they're bored out of their minds. Yes. And uh, another big change that I was looking at as far as through the article, and we'll make sure we link it there for you guys is, is how this movement towards making sure that the college is letting the students have a voice about college issues uh, through social media, if that makes any sense. They're involved in these conversations. So they're not just living on the outside. They're actually yeah. driving some of these conversations to happen where, they, where they're going to occur, which is on places like Snapchat or Instagram. And they want these conversations to happen there to, to make sure that the students' needs are being met, which I think is what a fantastic idea. And they're, they're recruiting students to run some of these social media sites to make sure that they're speaking the right lingo. You know what I'm saying? I say so that people are are actually interacting with these posts and not just like saying, oh, whatever, I'm not gonna follow, for example, my university uh, right. Snapchat. But now it's like it's an important thing to go ahead and do so and that they are uh, making sure they have those conversations where the students are actually at, which is in this case is is on social media. Really interesting. Listen, as long as Colleges and universities don't start sacrificing, you know, teaching kids critical thinking skills and, um, you know, deduction. And, you know, it, that's the stuff I learned. Inquiry. That's the stuff I learned that I've found most valuable is just being able to assess things, whatever situations, problems, um, opportunities with a, a critical mind. Um, that's that's one of my most valuable skills that I've learned in university. And as long as that doesn't go away, um, I, I don't particularly care how it's delivered. If it's delivered in a way um, that university students find engaging, then deliver it that way. Um, we would say the exact same thing for elementary school. And, and I love that universities are engaging students in what they want and how they want it. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it just it just makes sense. Again, they're customers and they have a choice and they can choose to take their, for lack of better words, business anywhere. Go somewhere else. Exactly. hundred percent. So I'm glad to see that uh, that they're adapting. Uh, super interesting article. We'll link it in the show notes. Uh, when we come back, we're going to get into uh, we haven't had this conversation, but we've kind of dabbled on it, I guess. Uh, we're going to talk about whether we should be teaching coding uh, to everybody. On Education is brought to you by Teacher Gaming. Teacher Gaming Desk is an all-in-one toolkit for any teacher looking to use more games in their classroom. 
and Teacher Gaming just launched a dedicated Chromebook subscription bundle with 20 awesome games. And I'm gonna tell you right now, it's only $99 per class per year. So you got your whole class, you got 20 different games that can be played on a Chromebook. How great is that? If you wanna learn more about Teacher Gaming, simply go to teachergaming.com to get started. All right, welcome back to the show. We've dabbled in this conversation every once in a while. Uh, it, it tends to come up when uh, English uh, or foreign language instruction comes up. Uh, but this idea of should we be uh, teaching coding to all students? Uh, Glenn just came back from uh, CCFLT, uh, which is probably why uh, we're having this conversation. <laughs> so, so give us give us the background. You were it, you were you were talking to Noah. It's ex- well, it's actually less related to the world language versus coding argument. Okay, I, I'm gonna okay. Pro- I'm gonna propose something else, and it sound, it's gonna sound really like again like a hot take, and people are probably gonna bash me for this, but. Here, cool. here, here's my thing. Um, so the world language versus coding argument, there's not even a, that's not even an argument. That's just ridiculous. Anybody that says that, you know, coding is a replacement for a world language, it's even, even code.org says, no, it's not. Um, yeah, yeah. That's... Uh, and so it, it's its own, it's its own entity. And yes, it has value. And we've, uh, I, I'll, I'll say yes, we'll determine that. Yeah, that's the, that's already an established fact. But one of the yes. things that I was talking about, and this is my hot take, is should we really be teaching coding to all students? And my, 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 my premise is, is the, uh, the action of doing coding, the same thing. And that's what I was asking some experts is the same thing as, for example, design thinking. So let's go to your, your project that you do, which is an amazing project that your students work on. And they basically take a, a, an idea and, and then turn that actually into a game that they publish. And they do all of these aspects of what you would see in a, for example, in a uh, big gaming company, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, whoever we might actually be talking about. uh, uh, Who's the people that built Skyrim? I saw a video about those guys at, but yeah, Bethesda and their, um, their work studios and, you know, all the different floors of all these different people working on different elements of the game itself. And so anyway, it reminded me of, uh, my brother works for this company called Psyop, and it's in uh, Los Angeles. And they work on movies and commercials and uh, other things like that. And my brother is a uh, compositor. Uh, basically, works with lighting and makes th- things that are two dimensional, uh, not only three dimensional, but makes them look lifelike. Uh, if that mm. makes any sense, so that in commercials or in movies or whatever it might be, you have these kind of animated things that are going on, and they look uh, just uh, better. I guess that's the better would be, uh, would, you know, not having too good of a descriptor there. Mm. But within his studio, uh, this this company, this psyop company, there's all of these different departments that he took me to. And so there's these people who are just 2D drawers, for example. They're literally doing pencil paper kind of stuff. I mean, of course, it's in these amazing technology tools, but they're basically doing 2D drawings. And then there's, of course, the compositing and lighting department that my brother works in. There's people who do 3D rendering. And then there's these other people who just do project management. Right. Uh, and they are the ones that make sure that uh, 
that the project gets done on time so that they get paid. And then, of course, there's big management people who are negotiating the deals with all of these specific companies and so on and so forth. So there's all of these different jobs. Yes. How? And that's what I asked my brother, actually, uh, even today. I just want to make sure I, uh, that I had the right uh, thought in mind is – does coding actually help all of these different types of jobs? And he said that if he knew coding for his specific uh, job, that he could probably uh, do some more things, you know, with yeah. some of the stuff that he works with. But he said, basically there's a coding section of, of his uh, work where they're, they're the builders of the tools. And I saw yeah. this, I saw this guy post on Twitter and basically that's where this all came from is he was, he's an actual coder for uh, as a professional. And he, uh, is one of the first people that I see that is anti teaching all students coding. He said, it's a, it's a specific skill for a specific, uh, 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 group of people, let's call it that. And what we want to do as coders is just develop a tool that then lets people create and teach and do wonderful things. He goes, he almost saw himself more as a, a builder of tools than an actual, you know, game changer. You know, of, yeah. of, I want people to take these tools and then go do amazing things with them. You know, so he didn't see how that's, you know, the, the connection there. So it was interesting. And I wanted to make sure I brought it to you. You're a computer science teacher and you've done it. You've done it with um, uh, younger kids, too. So it, 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 it's an interesting take. What do you so what are you thinking now that so, you get to hear my hot take? <laughs> so that that Twitter conversation and I kind of had a feeling that that's where this came from. OK, it got sent to me um, surprisingly not from you. Um but from from someone else, and and I actually responded on it, um, because I I think that like your your brother, mm-hmm. um, in his response, I think his response hits the nail on the head. I don't think that I I think it's valuable to teach everybody a little bit of coding. Okay, there's value in it. It's not only is there value in it, but it's fun. And it's an interesting com- it's an interesting topic to learn in school, but but and it's but it's fun for someone like you though, Mike. So we got to think okay. of other other people who are not in maybe not into that, or they're not even that's not where their passion lies. Because I talked to some people today just at school, uh, a former English teacher, and at, was just having this conversation, and they were like, "Oh, I couldn't imagine having the you know do this," but maybe they don't know how cool it can be, you know. Like if right. you, they were and teaching it, in, if they were being taught by like, you know, a dynamic teacher. Right. I think obviously the key to teaching anything is to teach it well and to use the best tools and uh, to use the tools that engage kids so that it is fun. And I think I do that. I, I, I don't get a lot of people telling me they don't like coding at all. And I, I mean, I teach foreign kids, so it's anecdotal, but but still, uh, I think that every job could be made better with just a little bit of knowledge of code, just like your brother's job. But one of the points that I brought up, even in that Twitter thread, was was talking about agriculture. Okay. So, a big need in the world in the next thirty years is going to be just basically to grow more food. We need to learn how to grow more food we're growing our population exponentially and we're running out of food to feed people. And we're going to need to hire some coders 
<laughs> to work out some algorithms and do some serious science, some computer science to help solve this problem. So you think that the problem can be solved through an algorithm and see my take is it's going to take a creative mind a creative solution do you know what i mean like beyond but i'm actually beyond the coding of a of an algorithm it's like somebody that says i'm thinking so far outside the box but that's not specifically coding or maybe it is i don't know if that's if that's all included inside of that that conversation but i'm actually coming at this from a different way yeah these computer scientists that are going to be involved in figuring out the best way to grow food for nine to almost 10 billion people should know a little bit about agriculture before they just hop on their computers and clickety clack and come up with whatever, you know, program they're going to use to solve growing more food. They should know about agriculture. The work of agriculture, while it's made more valuable through coding, uh, these these coders need to also know a little bit about agriculture. See how it works inversely? That, you know, if you want to get into waste management, for example, I mean, and this is a thing. Okay. And, I mean, think about it, though. I mean, we, the, the garbage has got to go somewhere. And how we collect it is actually a pretty serious issue. Um, it's it's an important thing to think about, uh, city planning and and traffic. And, you know, you, yeah, you got to no, collect the garbage and put it somewhere. So, again, it's it's there are people that are developing programs related to waste management. And they're not just programmers, they need to have at least a modicum of knowledge about the actual field that they're programming in. Sure. It just makes sense. They don't need to be experts. They just need to have a base knowledge and then know who to talk to when they need detailed knowledge. So not everyone needs to be a programmer. You don't need, we don't need programming farmers. But the idea that with just a little bit of knowledge, if you want to improve something with the use of programming, you might at least be able to know what you're talking about to then go and see someone else potentially and solve this problem you're having. It's. I'm not saying that every person needs to be a coder. I'm not a coder, for the love of God. I. I mean, I. I know how to use Scratch. I'm really good at Scratch, guys. I don't know <laughs> C plus. I don't know Python, and I don't know Java. I teach elementary computer science. I'm not a computer science programmer. I'm a teacher. Yeah, but I would. Okay. I would. I would pose this to you then, Mike. If you did know how to use Java, or any of these other programs, C plus plus, whatever it might be, you know. Let's just say that that was just part of your, you know, uh, when you were growing up, you actually were interested and you took all those classes. Yeah. Would that have improved your teaching? Potentially. I, I don't doubt that it would have. I, I don't doubt that if I. But that's what I'm trying to do is make, about... that, make that connection, though. Yeah. I, I don't see no. how that those two things are connected. 
I, I just That's think that I, like I mean, if, I, if, I knew, if I knew if I knew Python, for example, so a lot of a lot of um, 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 the block based programming can be translated pretty easily to Python. Uh, okay. I don't know Python. I wish I did because then I could do that extension stuff that some teachers do who do know Python, who have learned it and, or or stepped out and, and taken courses to learn it or our computer programmers who then decide to become teachers but know Python. I don't know Python. But if I did, I could then provide extension activities to my students that were more than just do this harder thing on Scratch, which is... yeah to be honest, what I'm tending to do now. And the kids like that and they feel challenged. So I feel like I'm, I'm doing okay being not again, not a computer programmer. Um, but I, I think that I, I think that yes, the coding is made um, may would make my learning how to code in a more at a deeper level would make my job more valuable. And I think it would make a lot of other jobs more valuable as well. And I, I think for you being a computer science teacher, it, it was a bad ask. <laughs> of course, it would make your job better. I just wonder, as far as me being a Spanish teacher, whether it would do that. But here's another here's another take that I hear all the time as far as about coding. We need to teach our kids coding because there's all of these jobs that need to be filled that have to do with coding, right? Yes. And the same argument, in the same argument, though, you hear this thing. We don't even know what jobs are going to exist 10 years from now, right? We just know they're going to be computer programming. No, no, we don't. We don't. And that's what I was saying. That's what I'm saying. Like, how can we make that assumption? We don't even, like, we couldn't predict where we are right now 10 years ago as far as the types of jobs and positions. I've seen some great keynote addresses that show all of these different types of jobs. You've seen those kind where they show all these different jobs that now exist and we don't even know what they are. You know, it's like, wow. And I don't know, man. 10, 10, 15 years from now, will. The coding that you that we're like talking about, whether it be the basic coding, whatever it might be, be related to the jobs and industry that need to be taught there. And I guess I, I mean, I was looking at Brian uh, Aspinall's book, and yeah, and I as I read it, I was like, I don't even know if it's really talking about coding. It's talking about a lot of different types of skills. Like skill yeah, sets, yeah. like collaborative learning, work, being able to work in groups. Yeah, yeah. I talk about it all the time. Creativity, blah, 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 yeah. whatever it might be. So uh, so then I was like, okay, so is that's coding then? And if it is, if that's what we're all talking about, then I guess I would agree. But I was like, I thought coding was like, you know, putting some code down and then making things happen as far as within a program or developing something, you know, uh, creating it on uh, it, on a computer, so I, I'm trying to like figure out the connection between the two. Maybe we need to bring on a guest like that to kind of school me <laughs> and and bring me back to saying, yes, we should be teaching it because of this. And I've read a lot of articles that say, yes, we should be teaching it. I mean, a lot. That is everybody's take right now. So I just wanted to see if we could take a step back and say, hey, uh, is that really what we're supposed to all be doing? So I'm sure I'll get bashed for this, but I figured I'd bring it up. <laughs> They're, they're, I keep forgetting the things I want to say, man. Uh, <laughs> I, I I talk about 21st century skills all the time uh, to parents in particular when I talk yes. about programming. Uh, one of the great, um, uh, I think that teaching coding is a powerhouse tool for teaching 21st century skills. It is one of the best tools 
for hitting on all of those 21st century skills all at once. You can teach collaborative working. You can teach problem solving. You can teach persistence. Uh, you can do all of these things uh, through teaching programming. It's a, I, I find it, I find it to be a great tool for that. Okay. So I, I bring so that up all that, the time. You're teaching those. Then it, if someone, a kid is coding and they're learning that within a classroom environment, these other skills are they're being. by default getting these other skills as well. Yeah. hundred percent. So here's my question for you. I don't know if you have an answer for this. Is there different ways of being able to do that? Because some of us grew up without coding, obviously, yet obviously. we still have those skills. I grew up without coding. That's what I'm saying. Me too. But we still have those skills, creativity, collaboration. You know, we still got taught those skills at some point or another. We learned them. You know, is um, so that's what I'm trying to figure out is like, okay, I get it. And I'm not opposed to coding. I just was like, okay, have we taken a plunge over the edge? Remember we were talking about technology and the whole billion dollar thing about Los Angeles school district spending a billion dollars on iPads and then it failing. Is this like that same thing? We're already we're going over this ledge because everybody's like, yes, coding, coding, coding. And then we're going to go look back and then five years from now, we're going to be on this podcast and you're going to be uh, <laughs> talking about like how you did, talked about smart boards, remember? So yeah. that's what I was wondering. Oh, okay. I, I actually <laughs> remember one of the things I was going to say before now. It, okay. it came back to me it, about predicting the future. I, I mean, okay. dude, you can look at a trend line just like as much as I can look at a trend line and see things. You may not know the exact job, but you know where things are trending. I know that we're going to need some botanists and we're going to need some agriculture people. We need to figure out how to feed 10 billion people in the next 30 years. We know that because we know the population is growing. We don't know exactly the percentage the precise nature of those jobs, but we know that those jobs are going to exist and that, that it's going to take a, a, a whole manner of fields to solve those problems. We need clean water. We are running out, especially in the United States, running out of fresh water. Okay. Got I, I agree with you those, with all those things. Got to solve yep. those problems somehow. You're going to need some scientists that can solve this problem you can sure. look at that trend and you can identify that that's going to be a problem in a couple of years we're running out of oil we know that that's happening we don't know the exact nature of the products that we're going to be making when we're not using plastic to make them yep but we know that something else is going to exist and okay. that we need to figure out what that is and then there will be new jobs so I mean, we know that we're going to need computer programmers to do a number of things. We don't know exactly what those things are. We just know that that number is increasing significantly because our world is quite a bit more data-driven and takes place online as opposed to in manual labor or, or those types of environments. We know we need computer programmers. We can see it trending that way. So that's, I guess, the one thing that I'd say to that that first thing. And the other thing is, uh, well, now I've forgotten the other thing. <laughs> but, I mean, and I know all your problems you're 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 uh, you're talking about there. And it's, uh, I saw, I was listening to a, a super intelligent um, 
keynote speaker. Now I'm not going to be able to remember his name, but he was originally, he's an immigrant from China and he was talking about kind of how we don't want to become China. He was talking about standardized testing basically. Um, and he said, because there's something unique about the U S system, as far as education that we should be really proud of. And that's basically right. that we create people that become these entrepreneurs that are, that they think way outside the box, you know, for example, you know, that they, they don't, they don't, they're not confined within what, what is currently, you know, trending or whatever it might be. They're in a, they're in a completely different thing. And we have a way to be able to bring, that's where a lot of these people are actually in the United States where they, and they grow up here. So right. my thought though, is behind all this is that, is that really related to coding, you know, or is that coding is going to give us more of those kind of people, and I don't know if it is. I I I I feel that those people are like creative minds and uh, out of the box type of thinkers. I, right. I'm not sure how that exactly is related to coding. But again, we should bring on a guest, uh, whether it be Brian or somebody else, to go ahead and uh, and 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 uh, give me the answers that I'm looking for. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, yeah, we will continue this. It'll come up again. <laughs> Uh, when we when we come back, we're going to be joined by Zahava Stadler from EdBuild. Stay tuned. On Education is brought to you by Project Pals. Project-based learning has come a long way since poster boards and paper cutouts. Digital platforms like Project Pals have cut teacher prep time in half to allow more time for research and learning. They can either choose from the dozens of projects available in the catalog or create a tailored project from scratch. Project Pals multi-purpose platform allows students to work in real time to create project assets, import media, and save their resources all in one place. Student contribution analytics and a progress bar keep teachers up to date. Solidly grounded in years of research, Project Pals is your all-in-one solution for student-centered inquiries and group projects. All right, welcome back to the podcast. I've been looking forward to this uh, for quite a while. I love getting into the weeds and talking about policy, and our guest today is Zahava Stadler. Zahava is the Director of Policy for EdBuild, and we're going to talk, hopefully, about school funding and get into the weeds about that. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Zahava. Thank you so much. Great to be with you guys. Awesome. Before we get rolling here, tell the audience, uh, if you could, a little bit about yourself uh, and your background and a little bit about EdBuild and what you guys do there. Sure. So as you said, I'm director of policy for EdBuild. We are a nonprofit focused on education finance policy, and we're based in the U.S. in New Jersey, but we don't focus just on New Jersey. We focus on any one of the U.S. states uh, and their state level policy around how to fund K-12 public education. Uh, We say our mission is to bring common sense and fairness to the way states fund K-12 public education, which might give you a hint that we think that right now the system is pretty lacking in both common sense and fairness. Um, And I love that this job is dealing with with what I think is a really fundamental part of educational inequality. I think a lot of education... Um, You know, my background before I was working for EdBuild and even before grad school, I was doing human capital work, which is kind of code for how the people who work in schools, principals and teachers primarily get trained, selected, hired, compensated, maybe even fired one day. Um, And all of that has 
equity implications, right? We care a lot about who's teaching our kids in different places and how that gets to be that way. But it's almost like if you take that equity approach, then you're realizing, okay, there's a ground level inequality. The ground level inequality is really fundamental. Now, how do we compensate for it with the right people? Or how do we compensate for it with the right remedial programming? Or how do we compensate for it in any number of other kinds of policies. What I love about EdBuild is that we're tackling that ground level inequality that has to do with those resource disparities at the beginning. How does that inequality open up before we try and fix the problem? Can we prevent it from arising in the first place? So that's what's really exciting to me about the work that we do. Very, very cool. Uh, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist uh, or, a, or a podcast host or even a director of policy, I guess, to see that educational funding is a bit of a mess. Uh, before we get into the why, I guess, of some of this, uh, how about a primer, I guess, uh, an educational funding 101? Uh, I suspect a lot of our audience, even educators, don't have a clear picture about how school funding actually works. Yeah, sure. This is one of those things that I think, um, you know, I, I used to get a lot of grief from teacher friends about working in education policy without having been a teacher. Um, maybe you relate to that a little bit, um, especially when I was doing human capital work. But you know what? Once I started working in finance, nobody gave me that grief anymore because even my teacher friends don't really know how education finance works. Um, and so this is something that they recognize that there's a lot of hopefully outside expertise uh, that can help. So here's where I would start. Education finance in the United States um, comes from three different levels of government, right? There's local dollars, which is from your local school district. There's state dollars and there's federal dollars. And a lot of the education policy conversation, like a lot of all policy conversation, gets really eaten up by the federal scene, right? We all want to talk about the federal government and, and the people who are operating at that level, and that's where the news is made. But actually, education funding in the U.S. is less than 10% federal. Um, so between 8 and 10% in any given year, uh, you know, things fluctuate a little bit. And the other 90 plus percent is split pretty much evenly between state and local dollars. Hmm. So average across the country, um, you know, of every dollar in the classroom, 45 cents is coming from your local school district, 45 cents is coming from your state, and about 10 cents or less is coming from the federal government. So that's something that I think a, a lot of people don't know to start off with. Um, but the real... Uh, the real rub is how you decide what's state and what's local, right? Because those 45 cents are an average across the country, but those are really different numbers in different places. Right. And, and so that's where the policy comes in. Um, and this works differently in every single state. So the real basics is that every state has a formula that totals up how much money a school district should need. Right. So the, the state will have a particular formula that says, you know, in, in one state, it might say, OK, we think that the average kid with no special needs or disadvantages costs five thousand dollars to educate per year. But then a student who comes from a low income household, uh, one and a half times as much as that. So it's seventy five hundred per year. And an English language learner is twice as much as that. So it's ten thousand dollars per year. And by totaling up how many kids you have in each category and what their needs are and what the state's estimated costs are, um, you spit out a number at the end for the whole district. 
that's a that's one kind of state funding formula that applies broadly speaking in 30 some states. All right. And then step 2 is okay, we've told you how much you need, now who pays for it? And this is a totally separate calculation where the state will have a system for determining how much money the local school district should be expected to kick in and the state will fill in the rest. So ideally, if the state's doing a good job at that, then a state will kick in more money for a low wealth community if a school district doesn't have a lot of local tax dollars, doesn't have a big property tax base to draw on, because in the U.S. local dollars mostly come from property taxes. Right. So if you have a low wealth community that doesn't have a lot of property wealth to draw on, then the state will kick in more money. If you have a higher wealth community that has a lot of property wealth to draw on, they can really fund it all themselves, then the state might not have to kick in anything to fill in that total. So that's the the big broad strokes of the way it works, but all of the fine print is really different from state to state. And the last question that you have to answer is, okay, and what about money in addition to what the state thinks you need? Outside that formula, is the local school district allowed to raise, quote unquote, extra money? And in states with a lot of flexibility, as you can imagine, the wealthier communities kick in a lot of that extra money and the poor communities aren't able to, and that moves the goalposts for everybody. So those are the big questions. How much does the state think you need? How does it split up? Who's responsible for raising that money? And does it let you kick in extra money that the state doesn't think you need that can really change the game on the ground? So so many questions. <laughs> it, it it doesn't. Um, where do I want to go? It it seems like so. So I'm going to I'm going to go back to something you said. Uh, it seems like where you live, uh, even in a city, uh, what part of town you live in, because some cities have different districts, even within like a, a, a regional uh, city area has a massive, massive oversized, in fact, impact, I guess on the quality of your education. Does that, does that seem pretty accurate to suggest? I mean, I think there, there are two kinds of cities you could be talking about here. So I'll just give you some U S examples, right? New York city is one school district, the whole of New York city. It's the biggest school district in the United States. That's a lot of kids. It's a lot of tax revenue. Yeah. All of that is one school district. And what that means, the more boring way of saying that is it's one taxing jurisdiction. So all of that money goes into one big pot and then the district decides how to hand it out. That means that the equality that you see on the ground is really a function of local decision-making. Now, flip side, Mm -hmm. think about a city like San Antonio, Texas. Okay. San Antonio has a San Antonio school district. There's a city school district in San Antonio, but it only covers actually a pretty small portion of the city. There are actually 17 school districts that overlap part of the city of San Antonio. Wow. That's yeah, there's crazy. four in Toronto. That's I was thinking about Toronto because there's four school districts, basically operating in what you would call the GTA, right? So, so even in Toronto, there's and our school boards are way bigger, generally speaking, than districts. I, I mean, New York being the exception, but some of these districts are are kind of small, uh, right? But uh, 17 is insane. 
Right. So when I say 17 school districts, again, sort of the wonkier way of saying that is 17 taxing jurisdictions, right? There are 17 different money pots. And so if the poorer part of the city of San Antonio is a small school district raising its own money, well, that's going to look very, very different than the wealthier part of the city, even though they're all part of the same city. And look, there's a huge range here, right? I'm from New Jersey. If you think about the size of New Jersey on the U.S. map, it doesn't loom very large. There are about 600 school districts in the state of New Jersey. Hmm. Now, that's kind of nuts, right? But if you look at, let's say, Maryland, there are 24 school districts in Maryland. And the real thing there is that almost all Maryland school districts, with, with one exception of Baltimore City for historical reasons, are drawn on county lines. So the entire county is one school district which is a totally different model than you have up in New Jersey when you have each individual municipality, every little town is its own school district. So it really yeah. depends how the state decides to divide it up. Wow. I, I can't even imagine. Like I, I knew that the districts were quite a bit smaller. I, I was in Chicago um, doing some training in late August and the school district that I was working for there um, had one high school and four elementary schools. And that was it. Uh, where like even the smallest school board in Ontario would have, you know, even hundreds of schools uh, potentially. So I know that our, our school boards are quite a bit bigger than districts, but I didn't think that there, how many did you say were in New Jersey? 60, sorry, yes. 600, 600. Yeah. I, I think the actual number last I checked was 591. Um, I mean, but look, you, you go out, you know, you go out to, um, to a, a state like Colorado and the school districts are much larger. It's, It's sort of regional and historical, but you know what? We talk about these things like they're a fact of nature, like people in New Jersey don't realize that it's unusual how small their school districts are. But really, these are choices that state policymakers are making. Um, You know, this is something that could be different, um, and it really has a major impact on how much money can be raised because the school district border defines the community that raises those local taxes. Right. Okay. So we've established tons of districts and there isn't a universal funding system for schools in the United States, right? They're, they're all, they all operate a little differently. You said some 30 or so states have kind of a formula, but not even all the states have a formula uh, and districts can all be potentially funded using different measuring sticks. Uh, what is the what is the major kind of the macro problem with this? And and I guess the better question is, um, what are what are some of the solutions for this sort of thing? Because this is obviously quite a big problem. Well, before I answer the question directly, I just don't want to misrepresent it. When I said 30-some states do it the way I was describing before, that was a particular kind of formula. Nearly sure. every state has a formula. Of um, some sort. Of some sort. Um, you know, there, there are a couple of exceptions here and there where you have a weird quirk, like a state's funding formula has been struck down by its courts and they haven't <laughs> replaced it yet or something. Okay. Uh, school funding formulas are a really popular topic for lawsuits in this country. I um, imagine. So, yeah, there is no one funding system for the U.S. I mean, there's federal money, and it gets handed out in a certain way. But like I said, that's that's just a sliver, right? That's less than 10% of school money. Right. Um, so they all use different systems. And I'm not going to say that that's necessarily a bad thing, right? There are states that have very different needs. So, for instance, you might have a state that has a lot of immigration from Spanish-speaking countries, 
And that state might be contending with a real influx of English language learners, and they need to be very purposeful about how they fund uh, instruction for English language learners. Maybe you have another state where that's really not the issue, but the job market is such that it's really important that they invest a lot in career and technical education because not everybody's college bound. English English as a second language needs would be completely different in Texas and Arizona and Southern California than they would be in, I don't know, North Dakota and Montana. Yeah. I mean, look, this is, it's a, it's a very big country with, with a lot of people and a lot of, a lot of different kids with a lot of different needs. And so I don't want to say that one yardstick is the way to do it. Um, and certainly when EdBuild goes around to different States to try and, uh, advise on school funding policy, we try to be really, conscious of the conditions on the ground and the populations that they need to serve. Um, that said, this is there are definitely better and worse ab- approaches, and there are definitely states doing a great job and states doing a less good job. Well, I'll say this. I don't want to say that any state is doing a perfect job across the board, but right. there are definitely states where they've gotten this piece really right. Um, and so I love to, you know, piece together everybody's best ideas, um, to pull them together into the best kind of, uh, the best kind of solution that we could recommend to the most kind of states. So we live in a time where policies surrounding equity and egalitarianism, that's like one of my favorite words, uh, are are perceived as taking things away from other people, even oppose, even oppressing people, uh, that equitable policies aren't geared towards. And, and school funding absolutely is related to this. This is a, um, a a sociology and psychology issue almost as much as it is, you know, an economics issue with the way that things are perceived. Um, how do we, how do you combat that stuff? How do you, do you guys even assess that sort of um, the, the general consensus or feelings uh, in a in a district or area related to its funding, you know that's really it's really a tough issue, and I think that yeah. this is something where the discourse is shifting really fast. <laughs> um, so it's hard to uh, it's hard to have the the magic bullet on this one. Yeah. Um, definitely, there's a lot of sensitivity. I'll give you I'll give you an example. One of the things that I mentioned in the beginning about how schools are funded. One of the big policy questions is: Are districts allowed to raise? extra money, right? The state has a formula. It thinks you need a certain amount, but does it let you raise more than that as a local community and spend extra on your schools? Right. You're talking about like fundraising, like bake sales. I don't know what other examples to use, but stuff. No, like- I'm even talking about government funding, right? So let's okay. say the state Plants. calculates uh, that your district needs a million dollars, okay. but your local community, uh, your local school district, not outside the system, goes to the polls on election day and approves a higher tax rate because you want to spend $1.5 million. Right. Because you want your kids to have a brand new school building or a new uh, advanced placement program or something. And so the school board went to the voters and said, we think that we can provide such and such great programming if you approve a tax hike. If the state lets you raise that quote unquote extra money and the community has the wherewithal to do it, then you might be bringing money into the system just for that school district that a poorer community next door could not hope to raise. Sure, yeah. So that creates an inequality. But is it an unjustifiable inequality? I've had this conversation with parents who say, 
but I'm willing to spend more on my kid's education. How can you tell me that I can't provide more for my child? Right. That's com- right. That's where it gets complicated. That's where it gets complicated. And obviously there's, you know, there, there's going to be a limit to how much equality you can do, right? You're not going to be able to swoop into somebody's private home on the weekends and say, you can't take your kid to a museum unless you also bring that kid to a museum. Sure. Right. There's, there's no, there's no magic way that all of the resources can be equal, but there is, um, there's also no law of nature that says that the dollars have to be local, okay. right? So we have this whole system that's premised on this foundation of local property taxes. Like that's the first input to education. Right. And if there's inequality in local property tax capacity, okay, so the state can like step in and make up the difference. But we start with this unequal foundation. By, by an accident of history, that that's how we do things in the U.S. But there's no fundamental need to start that way. And there are states, just a couple, where education is actually funded entirely at the state level, right? In Actually, it's Hawaii and Vermont, where education is funded entirely at the state level. And nobody says, but it's my divine right to pay local property taxes for schools. <laughs> I mean, that's just not how it works there. So it's not right. how it works there. And so if, if Vermont wants to collect a state education tax for schools or if Hawaii wants to operate as one big school district and pool all of its money, right. which it does, well, that's just fine, right? There's no reason we have to start from this unequal foundation. And so you don't quite have to break into this conversation about, well, these are my local dollars and you're taking them away and giving them somewhere else. We don't have to start from this premise to begin with. We can fund schools in theory from the state level and create a more equitable foundation. Amazing. Interesting. Uh, we, so let's, let's go back to where, where equity though is a problem, I guess, at, you know, low income, low wealth, um, uh, neighborhoods and areas. Uh, and I guess some of the solutions are known. I mean, w- we have, we're not lacking good ideas. I, I think for the most part, most of the problems can be solved. They, they lack political will in a lot of cases. Uh, for example, we know that we could offer financial incentives to teachers who decide to work in high poverty, high crime areas uh, to encourage great teachers to go there uh, and and have an impact. We, we actually do this in Ontario um, uh, with Northern Ontario uh, and having, having teachers... Uh, go up to Northern Ontario, work on uh, reservations and whatnot, and, and they get paid a, a decent amount more uh, to do that. Um, what would, uh, I mean, we know that that would, in, a, in the long term, that would make a big difference to communities. If you had great teachers uh, inspiring kids in, in these low-wealth, low-income um, neighborhoods, you would do a, a good uh, good work there. Uh, but these same districts uh, are also ones uh, with uh, so little funding that sometimes they can't offer these incentives. So how do we how do we break this cycle uh, of, uh, uh, of, you know, it's almost like a chicken in the egg to, to get less weedsy, but that's that's the problem. We need this money to pay teachers more, but we can't pay teachers more because we can't access the money. Yeah, I mean, it's a real tough problem, but I would say that I I would get at this two ways. One, you're talking about the kind of incentive or bonus structure that tends to be 
um, layered on top of a main education funding policy, right? Like, okay, we have this money that's allocated per student and we have this notion of how much education costs. And then we're going to have this separate pot that we're going to say, oh, but also in the low, in the low uh, income areas and the high poverty areas, we're going to set aside some money for that. So that's something you can do at the state level right? The state can decide that it is a state priority that right. out of the money that's pulled from all communities, that they can create a program like that. Um, and that's not something that needs to be necessarily at the mercy of differences in local dollars, if that right. makes sense. So you can do that from the state level to be a little bit of a broken record from what I was saying before, that the, the higher the level of, of government where you're pooling the funds, the more you're able to distribute it in a fair way. States could just decide yeah, I mean, we're going to we're going to add more to in, in inner cities funding so that they can pay teachers a little bit more to go there. States could just states could just do that. It's amazing how powerful state legislators are. <laughs> I mean, really, like in in the U.S., education policy is primarily a matter of state decision making, and there's a tremendous amount that can be done at the state level. Um, but I'll say there's no necessary. The, the, there's no reason the structure has to be that it's like a separate pot for this special layer on top of it all bonus structure, right? Okay. What, what you can do is say, we recognize that for all kinds of needs, whether it's high quality teaching, whether it's nutritional needs, whether it's additional, uh, you know, uh, social workers in the schools, whether it's whatever fill in the blank, that students from high poverty communities have more expensive needs, Right. right? that those schools are just going to face a more resource-intensive challenge because their students need more supports in order to succeed at the same level. And then you can create a system a bit like what I was describing at the beginning where a low-income student simply generates more money for their district than a non-low-income student. And this is true in most states, that there's some version of that, but some states are much more generous about it than others. And at the end of the day, if the state estimates that a high poverty district needs a lot more funding than a low poverty district, and the state is really good about making up the difference between local tax capacities and is, is really good about making sure that the district gets that extra funding they need, right. which is, you know, not a guarantee. Of course but not. If, if the state does a great job of that, then maybe that district simply has the wiggle room to do things like offer those teacher incentives or hire those extra counselors or provide that extra wraparound services, whatever makes sense for their population. So the state can always create like a discrete bucket and they say, okay, our priority now is this, it's this kind of teacher incentive. But not every district is going to have the same kind of resource intensive needs, even if they're serving similarly not high need kids. And so for the state to come in with more money, but flexible money often is the best solution for those local communities. So let's end, let's end on a, on a good note. Uh, I'm really interested in, you, you've mentioned, I don't know if these are examples of this, but you mentioned Vermont and Hawaii who are, uh, they're doing some different things. Uh, are there places where school funding is working in particular? Are there places where low wealth neighborhoods uh, are, are still getting high quality education because the policies uh, and plans are weighted properly are, are where states are, are, are jumping in and saying we need to, to add to this or we need to, to make sure that this need gets met. 
um, are, where where is where is school funding working? Where what's our what's our model? Well, you know, I did say that I'm always really hesitant to say that one state system is is good for every state. Good, um, but there are definitely states that are doing bits and pieces of this really right. Awesome. Um, and so, one thing that I'll say is, like I said, Hawaii is one big school district, um, which means that the concept of interdistrict inequality, right? Like your district is poor and my district is rich, just isn't a thing. Sure. When you have one big district and all of the revenue gets pooled that way. Um, Vermont has a super complicated system. I mean, the degree to which you do not want me to go into those weeds, I don't want but that said. Another, another um, show. A whole other episode where I just spend an hour and a half oh, talking about Vermont. Sounds um, great. Um, but yeah, right over, right over the border from Canada, Vermont has figured out a way, um, so that all the money can be pooled at the state level without getting in the way of local decision-making about budgets, which is often the real sticking point of moving things up to the state level. Um, so there's just a, a really creative system in Vermont. Um, that's mm. actually the result of a long history of litigation where their Supreme Court really stepped in and said, we're doing this inequitably and we need to fix a system. And they crafted a really creative system where the money can be pooled, but that local communities can still have some, some uh, choice about how, they, how they, much they spend on education and how they spend on education. Um, all right. But I, then there I, are bits and pieces all over the place. I mean, you know, for instance... Um, a low-income student in Maryland yeah. generates an extra generates about double what a non-low-income student does. That's that's a pretty aggressive way for the state to say this is a big deal. The resource needs here are a big deal, and that's important. Or in a state like Florida, where every single school district is a county, you're drawing those borders really big. You don't have a lot of interdistrict inequities. Um, so that's the kind of thing where. Um, Look, the district itself has to make good decisions about where kids go to school within the district and how they spend the money on individual school buildings. You have to solve every problem at every level of government. But in terms of setting up for success, you know, those large school districts like the counties or, or thinking about how to pool revenue or thinking about how to be really progressive and how you value the education of low-income students, those are really the keys. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, this, this has been unbelievable. I could talk about this stuff all day, but, uh, but we, we certainly don't have the time we would love to have. I I'd love to have a conversation just about Vermont. So, <laughs> so, uh, Zahava, thanks for joining us. This has been great. Um, uh, hopefully you'll, you'll come back again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. On Education is an on-podcast media production. My name is Mike Washburn. My co-host is Glenn Irvin. You can get in touch with us or ask us questions to answer on air by visiting our website, oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. Glenn is at Irv Spanish on Twitter. I can be found on Twitter at Mr. Washburn. Our sound engineer is Jake Codeweiss. He's on Twitter at JK Radio. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be honored if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Schoology, for supporting us. 
Check out Schoology.com to learn how they can help you advance what's possible. Thanks as always for listening. Stay awesome. See you soon.